Well, since the beginning of the new year, uh, we've been using the Gospel of John to examine how, how God expresses himself to his people, how the weighty felt presence of God manifests, and, and how we can capture this reality with the, world, with the word glory. Glory is the felt presence, the weighty felt presence of God that makes him real to us, accessible to us, but also real through us and accessible through us. It's the glory of God that testifies to his existence. It testifies to his love. It testifies to his activity in our lives. It's glory that John presents in this gospel, in this good news found to be true about the Most High God. Now, so far, we've seen his glory revealed in different ways. We've seen it revealed in signs and wonders that show a pattern, a pattern that that moves towards those that seek him. Also, a part of that pattern is that as he moves towards those that seek him, he sees through our masks of brokenness. He sees what's really beyond there, and he beckons it out. He offers us healing. And he provides us with the one true sacrifice that makes us whole and righteous with the Father. Now, our study of the glory of God as a theme in the Gospel of John passed a threshold a few weeks ago when we moved out of the public demonstrations of glory that we see in the first 12 chapters of of the book of John. What we we see now is, is a more a private instruction that Jesus is providing to the 12 disciples, the 12 that are closest to him, as he prepares to make that ultimate sacrifice. The training that, that, that Jesus is providing really is a training in the unfolding of, of the plan that God has, that God had from, from creation, this meta-narrative that we see in Scripture. It's a training meant to impart on what it means to live in the kingdom, but also it's a training that would, reve- that would reveal how prepared the disciples are, and by extension how we are, to respond to that weighty felt presence of God. Remember these 12 had, had walked with Jesus for, for years. They'd, they'd seen the presence of God. They've seen this glory in a variety of different ways. They've, they've been in, instructed. They've been trained. They've even, by extension through them, they've even seen signs and wonders by their own action. All of that stuff that had happened comes down to this moment of private instruction. We find that in John chapter 16. You can join me starting in verse 16. Jesus teaching the disciples, in a little while, you won't see me anymore. A little while after that, you will see me again. Some of the disciples asked each other, what does he mean when he says, in a little while, you won't see me, but then you'll see me, then you will see me, and I'm going to the Father. And what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand. I'm glad they don't understand, because a lot of times I don't understand either. What we see here is confusion. This is a really telling outcome 
for those that have been closest to Jesus during his ministry on earth. Confusion. They were the closest to everything that had happened. And they're hearing this, te- this teaching, and the outcome is confusion. All the instruction, all the practical application, all the demonstrations over years coming to a conclusion, and the words of Jesus for them brings confusion rather than clarity. Now, see, the interesting thing about confusion is how natural it's become. How confusion, especially in in our modern culture, is normalized, it's weaponized, and even celebrated. Confusion, though, confusion speaks to the very need of the glory of God. It speaks to the very need of the weighty felt presence of God because confusion is often evidence of the resistance to God and submission to a world of chaos. Confusion is a state of of perplexity, bewilderment, and disorder. And disorder is a helpful paradigm for for confusion because it speaks to, to an outcome of God not being at the center of order. The actions of, of God make little sense when viewed from a lens constructed by, by my own power and persuasion. The way that God behaves doesn't make sense to me because it's not the way that I would behave. Hearing Jesus teach about what's coming next is bewildering because if I were God, I wouldn't behave that way. If I were thinking about what reconciliation means to me apart from Jesus, what it really looks like is you just should do what I say, and you should get out of my way, and you should make things comfortable for me, and you should revolve around me as the center of order. I say this often, and I mean it. I would make a really crappy God. When I choose to be the center of order and assume that that God would act the way that I do or that I would, I'm creating a false dichotomy. And when outcomes and events don't align with this dichotomy, confusion is the only result possible. Confusion over spiritual truth is the natural state for humanity. We can see that all around us. The state of the world is fallen And it's locked into this battle for competitive survival. It's locked in this battle of kingdom building. So our ideas of justice, of mercy, and even theologies of forgiveness are tainted by selfishness. So when human selfishness that results in uh, separating from God is answered by Jesus coming to be a humiliating sacrifice, uh, it doesn't make sense. The twelve are struggling they're landing in confusion. They're confused right now in the midst of a walk with Jesus that included signs and wonders, training that even saw the 12 work out signs and wonders because Jesus is doing and saying things that don't fit into the paradigm of their worldview. Confusion is resulting. What they want, what, what they would do if they were Jesus, the way right looks like from their perspective is, is nearly polar opposite of what Jesus is doing. This Messiah, the answer to the advent, the answer to that waiting time, 
waiting for justice, waiting for wholeness, waiting for completion. They're expecting this Messiah to come to conquer with force and fury. But he's conquering through submission and servitude. This just doesn't make sense. They saw glory. They operated in the midst of glory. But they're still not clear on how to demonstrate glory because their mechanism for understanding flows from the reality that they're not yet fully submitted to Jesus and to the plan that Jesus has for reconciliation. They're not submitted to Jesus, so they can't be submitted to that plan, and confusion results. We see through Scripture that spiritual confusion is humanity's natural state. In uh, the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 57, we see this, but those who still reject me are like the restless sea, which is never still but continually turns up mud and dirt. There is no peace for the wicked, says my God. Paul writing in 1 Corinthians, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. And then again in that same letter, he wrote, but people aren't spiritual, people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's spirit. It all sounds foolish to them. They can't understand it, for only those who are spiritual can understand what the spirit means. Now, what we see in all of this is that confusion can be treated negatively. I've kind of been doing that, treating confusion negatively. But we remember that God expresses himself in the ministry of reconciliation, uh, so there must be a positive way to see confusion. For us that have experienced the glory of God, for us that have seen this, this paradigm work out in our lives, where when we begin to seek, Jesus closes the gap. When he closes that gap and he comes towards us, he sees beyond our masks of brokenness and offers us healing. When we've experienced that, what we're experiencing is this truth, that we are not a perfected work, we are a perfecting work, that after experiencing Jesus, after placing our faith in him, we are not at the destination, but we're beginning the journey. And because we're beginning the journey, there is some confusion that will come from that because we're seeing our world deconstructed and what's being built in its place is not my will, but his will be done. And so the disciples, even though they are having their paradigm assaulted by the reality of Jesus, they're also in a place of greater understanding. And so confusion can bring us closer to the Father. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians, we're pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. In this place of faith, we are invited into an understanding of who God is and what God is about. Psalm 119 says, how sweet your words taste to me. They're sweeter than honey. Your commandments give me understanding. No wonder I hate every false way of life. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet 
and a light for my path. The prophet Jeremiah wrote, Ask me, and I'll tell you remarkable secrets you do not know about the things to come. The apostle James in James chapter 1 says, If you need wisdom, ask our generous God, and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. And so what we see then is that another way of displaying glory, another way for us to feel the presence of God, is that the Father meets us in confusion, just like Jesus is about to do for the disciples. As we get back into our passage for today in John 16, this is how Jesus answers the confusion of the twelve. Jesus realized that they wanted to ask him, and so he said, Are you asking yourselves what I meant? Man, the compassion of the Father that meets his people in this place. Are you asking yourselves what I meant? He doesn't wait for the question. He just asks it himself. I said in a little while you won't see me, but a little while after that you will see me again. I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn over what is going to happen to me, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will suddenly turn to wonderful joy. It'll be like a woman suffering the pains of labor. When her child is born, her anguish gives way to joy because she brought a new baby into the world. So you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. Then you will rejoice, and no one can rob you of that joy. At that time, you won't need to ask me for anything. I tell you the truth. You will ask the Father directly, and he will grant your request because you use my name. You haven't done this before. Ask using my name, and you will receive, and you will have abundant joy. Keeping the passage in context, Jesus is explaining to the disciples that they are, what, what they're about to experience. He's lining out for them what in just a few short hours their life is going to look like. If they view this experience from a lens crafted by their own worldview, from their own context, a context of submission to self, they will not be able to understand what's happening. And if they're unable to understand what's happening, they will not be able to endure. Jesus is talking about some rough events, difficult events, friction, things that, that, that to someone without the knowledge of Jesus would see as a loss. But they actually foretell complete and final victory as the grief turns to joy. To make that point, he uses childbirth as an, an illustration. Uh, now let me pause here and point out in, in sort of an oblique manner, um, this makes a good case for, for female teachers in the church because if I start to pontificate about how, ch how uh, painful childbirth is, I might look a little foolish. It actually, I had uh, a whole, um, uh, like, page and a half of jokes to tell at this point. And 
<laughs> yes. Uh, so I'm maturing in front of your eyes. And, I, and I've chosen not to use any of those jokes about, about childbirth and about uh, my experiences with childbirth because um, I'm realizing that, that I might only be the one that finds them funny. Uh, th- right, there we go. That's, <laughs> there might be some of that. Uh, <laughs> but what we see here is something that, that, that I, well, I can surmise this from my place on the sidelines of childbirth. I think if, if, my, uh, if, if my observation is correct, that childbirth, it can smart a little bit. <laughs> but it ends in such immense joy that it becomes a joyous cultural expression in, in Jewish community. We know that that's true for us here as well. With this, with this paradigm of childbirth as an example that Jesus is using, we're also stepping into another Jewish religious tradition that taught of two ages, the present age and the age to come. The age to come sometimes was referred to as the golden age of God. And so with this, in the between times of these two ages, we see a great and terrible day of judgment that's known as the day of the Lord, but it's also referred to in Scripture as the birth travail of the days of the Messiah. And so we have in these two ages and the event that, that, that ushers in the, the new age, we see the, the, this birth pain paradigm begin to construct, and so we see that there is necessary suffering that ushers in a golden age. There's necessary pain that brings apart great joy. Words from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 13 and also in Joel, uh, the prophet Joel in Joel chapter 2, speak of this time of the birth pangs of the Messiah. Jesus knew that this was common ground for the 12. They knew these prophetic words. They knew of the two ages, the ages to come. They knew of the pain. And so he's using this paradigm to connect them with something that that they would understand. This is what he means. This is the picture. Jesus is leaving. He's going forward to become substitutionary atonement for the sins of the world. He will die. As an historical event, Jesus will die, and he'll pay the price, and the twelve are going to feel immense loss. In that time of loss, in that time of separation, in that time where they probably are more aware than they had been in their entire life of how separate they were from the culture of the world, isolated, alone. Jesus speaks words of faith into that time. Faith to endure, but not just faith to endure, this faithful endurance that leads to blessings. Sorrow will turn to joy. Even when everything around us looks like incredible sorrow, 
joy will follow. In the time of sorrow, culture will rejoice because they misunderstand and think that God is dead. And if God's dead, that means they can take his place. They can create a new center of order. But that mistake is revealed when our sorrow turns to joy. The cost of that joy, though, is sorrow for today. So why is it worth the cost of the sorrow? Why is it worth, why, why would that joy be worth the pain? Speaking to a new mom, they can answer that question rather easily. Why the pain is worth the joy. But for us, why would this be worth what we are about to walk through? If we're the 12, we're hearing about this pain, this separation, this isolation. Why would this be worth the pain? The only answer we have is because the joy offered by Christ is complete and irrevocable. In this joy, the previous pain is going to be forgotten and replaced with the reality of total victory. The reason this joy cannot be taken is because it comes from Jesus. This joy promised to, to the disciples is either is, is promised to us or it's an invitation to us. It's one of those two things. That joy is either a promise to us or an invitation to us. When Jesus says that, that he will see us again and our hearts will rejoice, we're given a metric. If our hearts truly rejoice at the reality that we are joined to Christ in the resurrection, then this is a promise for us. But if this is not a cause for joy, we're invited to respond to the felt presence of God. We're invited to establish a relationship with Him. And through this resulting love, we step into the promise The problem that we have, though, is that if the joy doesn't come from Jesus, if we don't enjoy Jesus, if we don't love Jesus, we don't hold on to that promise, the promise of irrevocable joy, joy that cannot be taken. The joy that we have can be taken, will be taken. And the sorrow will be complete. This joy is the reality that the resurrection of Jesus means that we will never die. Because we'll never, be, we'll never die, we'll never be cut off from him. Life takes on a new momentum when we realize that what Jesus said to Martha at the tomb of Lazarus is connected to this joy. In John 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never die. And in this, we see joy that cannot be taken. Back into our, our passage today, 
John 16, verse 25. I've spoken of these matters and figures of speech, but soon I will stop speaking figuratively and I will tell you plainly all about the Father. Then you'll ask in my name. I'm not saying I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you dearly because you love me and believe that I came from God. Yes, I came from the Father into the world, and now I leave the world and return to the Father. And then his disciples said, at last you are speaking plainly and not figuratively. Now we understand that you know everything and there's no need to question you. From this we believe that you came from God. Jesus asked, do you finally believe? But the time is coming. Indeed, it is here now. When you will be scattered, each one going his own way, leaving me alone. Yet I'm not alone because the Father is with me. I've told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Jesus is telling the 12 that his work is nearly complete. And we see in the midst of that, in this teaching that began in in John 13, this private instruction to the disciples, we've seen the example of service. We've seen the peace that transcends all understanding. We've seen all of this motivated by love. We've seen even in the midst of that, some confusion about what's going on because the the 12 are still holding out a little bit of hope that maybe Jesus is going to become the conquering hero. Truth to tell, they're still looking for an action hero. They're still looking for somebody that's going to come to defeat and destroy their enemies. But they're getting it. They understand more now than they did a day ago. They understand more now than they did a week ago. They will understand a whole lot more in the week to come. The words that Jesus is leaving them with, take heart, I've overcome the world. Things are not as they seem. You will experience sorrow. Wait for the joy. Jesus is telling them he came from the Father with the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas. His birth as as Emmanuel, as God with us. Now, by way of the cross, he's returning to the Father. His return to the Father by way of the cross opens a path for us to do the same. Before this occurs, there's going to be even more glory for us to behold. The Jesus of this narrative is a forgiving, sympathetic gift to the twelve, and by extension, a gift to us. You think about the gift that he's giving them now. He knows, he knows that the 12 in front of him are going to abandon him. You think about what I might do 
if I knew my friends were going to abandon me. In the narrative of this story, we are are mere hours away from when Jesus is going to be abandoned in the garden. He's going to be disowned by the most loyal of his followers. And knowing that all of this is true, Jesus loves them through their weakness. Knowing what they're about to do, I'd go back to that thought of what I would do. If I knew I was about to be abandoned, would my response be love? He doesn't lash out at them. In this final moment, he doesn't condemn them. He doesn't hold their weakness against them. He displays glory one more time in a demonstration of love. Nothing that they or we could do could ever rob us of this love of Jesus, this joy that comes after sorrow. In his sympathy for the, for the twelve, he's also laser-focused on, on what their sin would do to him. But more than that, knowing what they're going to do, Think about where that focus actually cuts through and lands, not on what their actions would do to him, but what their actions to him would do to them. He's concerned for those that are about to perpetrate against him. That is fascinating. He's concerned for the, mor- the, the morale. He's concerned for their emotional health. He's concerned for their paradigm. He's concerned for those that are about to perpetrate against him. Imagine if we were to read this, if we were to learn from this, and proactively we were concerned for the people that are about to perpetrate against us. Imagine what the world would look like if in the same manner Jesus meeting these 12 in confusion, providing an answer to that confusion, but even more than providing the answer to that confusion, he's meeting them in the place where he knows they are going to sin against him. And instead of being condemned for that, his word is endure and you will find me on the other side. I imagine what what my world and life would look like if I thought this way. Not a focus on, on how transgressors hurt me, but on how those transgressions hurt them. And then I realize that only from this place, irrevocable joy can be understood. The gift of Jesus is not just the cross. The gift of Jesus is not just the cross, but the courage and the conquest of the cross. Jesus will see the world do its worst to him, and he's going to be victorious. We're invited into the victory by demonstrating a love for others that emulates this love 
that God has for those that are about to transgress against him. We've got opportunities to see the glory of God, to feel his presence by the way he reaches into our lives with an invitation to know him and be known by him. This reality can bring confusion. But he demonstrates his nature by meeting us in the confusion and providing his word and the presence of the Holy Spirit. The event that gives weight to his presence, this, resurrection, this death and resurrection, this is imminent. And it comes with the fulfillment for the promise of joy joy that can't be taken. So armed, we are ready for the sorrows of the world. We're ready for the sorrows of a, of a world not yet reconciled to the Creator. As we endure these sorrows, joy beckons, and this joy becomes the offering we can make to those we meet in the time between the Sundays. As we prepare to turn back to worship, Jesus offers us this today. If he's not the joy of your heart, I can tell you this, he wants to be. He reminds us in John 6 that he is the bread of life. Anyone that comes to him will not hunger again. An unbroken continuum of sustainment now and everlasting, no one, nothing can take away the, the joy that results from the glory of God. And with that joy in our hearts, all I can think to do is worship. Amen.